Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's May 9th, 2013, and our special guest is Peter Gregg, author of Free to Learn. Hi, Peter. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. <clears throat> Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Lots of fun coming up. We did hold our school leadership summit in March. That's all free and available. It was a worldwide conference, day-long conference online. Coming up at the ISTE conference, we have our unplugged event, starting with the all-day unconference called Hack Education. Uh, Pat Ferenga and I are coordinating a homeschool conference that we've been promising would happen in May, but um, through no fault of Pat's and my own, it's getting delayed. We'll give you a new date for that, but that will be an online free virtual conference as well. The STEM X conference will be in September, the Future of Libraries conference in October, and then our five-day 24-hour-a-day great enterprise, the Global Education Conference in November again. Coming up on this show, uh, on May 21st, Ernie Turner and Simona David on improving schools one community at a time. Simona's in Romania doing some fascinating work. Will Richardson on Why School on the 23rd. Franz Johansson on his book, The Click Moment. I know it's not a... Uh, book you're probably reading in education circles, but I'm going to make a case that we should. Don Winkle on student entrepreneurship, and then Larry Ferlazzo on his new book, Self-Driven Learning. We're rescheduling Matt Hearn, who had a timing issue before, so he's going to come back and talk about de-schooling. Howard Reingold's group on pureagogy, or peer learning, uh, and more. Lots more coming up. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded. They're in full Blackboard Collaborate form and an MP3. Uh, John Hunter talked about his World Peace Game yesterday. Uh, this is a profound book on the role of uh, teachers in students' lives, really worth paying attention to. Andreas Schleicher before that on the international exams, Jim Popham on uh, assessment, Vivian Stewart and Posse Salberg on uh, international education issues, Elliot Washer and Charles Majowski on um, big picture learning and uh, their own fascinating work. Anyway, lots there, hopefully something that's of interest to you. This is a chance for those of you in our studio audience to indicate where you're listening from. Um, you can look for the star icon to the left of the map, and click on it twice, then you can click on the map and let us know. You can also put a shout out in the chat. Yeah, Young Zhao's book. Young's been on the show, I think, now three times, and really love his take on entrepreneurship and education as well. Maria, you're back. Glad to have you here. Looks like Australia, somewhere in the South Pacific, Alaska. Ooh, Guam. Thomas, welcome. follow up after the show at that Mighty Bell address where there are links for uh, Peter's work. 
Peter, I have an interest in poverty and self-development. It's part of what brought me um, to Asia over the past month. And I've been reading a book called Poor Economics. And it's a look at not what we want to have happen or what we hope happens, but the actual evidence and the outcome of interventions. Uh, what are the actual results? I felt like in your book I was getting a very similar opportunity to look at schooling objectively. What are the actual results of our education system? Is that a fair lens through which to see your book? Uh, well, I haven't read the book that you're referring to, but uh, <laughs> I, I ha so I'd have to really know more about what this lens is that you're talking well, about. Well, the lens of looking at the actual evidence of what our schooling does. And I feel like throughout the book, your seven sins of forced education, Israel, a, a lot of what you're doing is saying, let's actually look at what schooling does and, and maybe look a little bit more objectively than we're used to at the outcome. Well, I think the whole problem is looking at the outcome. <laughs> you know, the problem is that you can't really measure an education, and we have become so outcome-oriented. How can, you know, once you have an idea of an outcome that uh, you're going to be able to educate people and that you can measure their education, then you've got school as we know it today. Um, if you have the idea that people educate themselves, they do it for their own purposes, they do it in accordance with their own ways, um, then you're not measuring it. You're not talking about outcome anymore. You're talking about, unless you're talking about outcome in a very, very, um, you know, using the word outcome in a way that's very different from the way that um, educators today generally use the word outcome, not as what are children learning, but are, you know, are children going on, growing up to live happy lives? Are they becoming generally moral people? Are they happy people? Are they, uh, are they, are they good citizens in our larger society? Um, that kind of um, outcome that can't be measured uh, year to year or moment to moment, but only in the, in the long term is uh, the kind of outcome that, that I would say is the only meaningful outcome um, for education research. Well, let me propose maybe a third category there, which are measurable outcomes, but which are not sort of academically related, like the rise of psychological disorders, um, the anxiety scale outcomes, the ways of looking at what schooling actually does versus what we say that it does. Yeah, well, the, what we do know is that over the last um, 50 or 60 years, there's been a, a continuous increase in um, all sorts of psychopathology in children. It's not just that we are um, observing it where we didn't see it before, um, but even by standard measures, questionnaires, the clinical questionnaires that have been given in unchanged form, over the decades to normative samples of young people, um, clinically significant anxiety disorder and major depression in children has increased by five to eight fold over the last 50 years. Um, suicide rates have uh, quadrupled over the last 50 years. These have been gradual changes. 
Now, of course, we can't say for sure exactly what the cause of, of, of these changes are, but they don't correlate with economic cycles, they don't correlate with wars, they don't correlate with the divorce rate, they don't correlate with any of the things that people might commonly point to as causing distress in families or causing distress in children. They correlate perfectly with the uh, decline of children's freedom. Uh, there's been a continuous decline of children's freedom. Now, part of that decline of children's freedom has to do with the increased time in school and with the um, uh, increased time doing homework out of school, the increased weight of school, if you will. But, it, but there are also other um, factors in society that have, um, have worked with this increase in schooling to... Um, to cause a decline in children's freedom. Parents have become much more fearful and protective of their children. Children are not allowed to go out and play even when they don't have homework to do as they once were. They're not spending their time freely engaged with other kids. And my argument is that is the fundamental uh, problem, that children really need free play, free exploration, opportunities for to learn how to control their own lives, learn how to get into problems and, and, and solve those problems, learn how to get along with other people, the kinds of things that cannot be taught to children and that cannot be learned by children as long as adults are taking control of their lives and solving their problems for them. So to the degree that school has usurped children's time, to the degree that the school mentality that the, the mentality that children develop best when they're being carefully guided and directed by adults, that problem is, has contributed greatly to the decline of children's freedom, and I would argue that it's the decline of children's freedom that has led to these pathological attacks. So there's an interesting kind of confluence here, right, of most recent historical activity, but also of sort of long-term trends. If I've understood the book, the sort of the brief thesis for me would be, for most of human history, hunter-gatherer societies, there's a very different entrance into uh, adult living within the, the culture or community that switched when we became agricultural. Is that, is that a fair representation of the sort of the larger history? Right. Uh, what researchers who have studied hunter-gatherer cultures in various parts of the world um, have all come to the same conclusions regarding children's um, lives in those cultures, that the expectation on the part of uh, adult hunter-gatherers is that children from the age of four on through their teenage years will play and explore with other kids, not directed by adults. Um, of course, adults are around and kids go to adults when they, when they need help or want help, but adults don't interfere with kids' activities. They don't try to direct children. Children are playing and exploring on their own with other kids in age-mixed groups, and in the process, they are practicing in their play all of the basic activities that are crucial to their culture. They're playing at hunting and gathering, they're playing at tracking animals, they're playing at building huts and dug out canoes and at fishing and all the kinds of things that are essential to life in their culture. They're playing musical instruments and they're dancing the dances of their culture. 
because it's natural for children to look around them, see what it is that is valuable in your culture, what it is that people do, and to incorporate that into their play. So nobody's telling them what to play at, but they just naturally play at things that result in their acquiring the uh, skills and also the values of their culture. So that's uh, the way that children in hunter-gatherer cultures educate themselves. We don't know, we of course have no way to know for certain that this uh, would have been true all the way back in human history um, all, for all of our pre-agricultural history. But the fact that we find this to be true in hunter-gatherer cultures, whether they're found in Africa or Asia or South America or Australia or, uh, or uh, north of the Arctic Circle in the case of the Inuit, um, leads one to think that wherever people have lived in a hunter-gatherer culture, they, they have likely treated children this way. And um, there's good reasons why they would have, actually. So, um, so when you compare hunter-gatherer peoples with the neighboring agricultural people who may be genetically very closely related, they're just people who've decided to go into farming, often encouraged by the government to do so, you find uh, things begin to change. Children become much less free. They're much more likely to have to work on the farm or to work taking care of kids. Um, families get much larger once you go to agriculture. Hunter-gatherers space their kids out uh, by five or six years typically on average so that and um, and not all the children survive unfortunately because of the lack of modern medicine so family sizes are small in hunter-gatherer cultures and farm once you have farming cultures family sizes are very large you get a lot of mouths to feed a lot of work to do you begin to have um, master slave kinds of relationships because those who own the land have power over those who don't own the land Within the family, you have you begin to have patriarchies where fathers own the property, and you better obey your father if you're going to inherit the property at some point. So you suddenly begin to get a very different kind of economic reality. Um, a reality, the reality in the hunter-gatherer band is is that free will and creativity and individual assertiveness are valued. Um, the reality once you go to farming shifts, not, not necessarily all at once, but gradually shifts to a reality where obedience is the primary um, is, is, is the primary value. So, um, you know, do it because I tell you to do it, you know. Don't ask why. That becomes the way that fathers talk to their children and um, that becomes the uh, the, the spirit of child raising in general becomes one of trying to inculcate obedience. And that often means sort of quite literally beating the playfulness out of children so that they will work and they will obey and they'll do what they're told to do rather than to do what they want to do. So that's, that was the history of, you know, thousands of years ago. And then, of course, we went into... Um, feudalism where most people were serfs or servants of one sort or another to lords and masters and uh, and of course the whole goal of child raising and those under those conditions is to create subservient behavior not to create critical thinking or willfulness quite the opposite and um, our modern schools really arose out of that environment you, you know in the uh, 
once we had the Protestant uh, Reformation, um, people began to realize that, or people, um, you know, the, the, the reformers believed it was very important for children to read the Bible. That was the primary purpose for reading. But even more than, than that, important to believe the Bible, the literal interpretation of the Bible as, um, you know, as dictated by the Protestant reformers. So schools were developed to uh, teach uh, Protestant um, dogma and also to, uh, to further teach obedience. Um, you know, the primary purpose of the early schools was really quite explicitly stated by the people who developed the schools was really to suppress um, willfulness. Willfulness at that time was kind of tantamount to sinfulness. So. Looking at it in the broad sweep of history, we had this, you know, you could almost call in one sense, the, the, gold, the real golden age of childhood was hunter-gatherer period when children were really free to play and explore on their own, controlled their own lives to an enormous extent, very much trusted by adults. Um, on into this stage where children were basically laborers and servants and would grow up largely to be servants and workers for other people. And now here we are in a world where um, presumably we want, again, for people to be creative, for people to feel that they're in charge of their own lives. Uh, we're not, we don't see ourselves. I think even um, the people in charge of the schools don't see themselves as trying to create servants or, or people whose own will and creativity has been suppressed. But we still have a school system that was developed initially for that purpose and so therefore fails to, in, in, in any um, task of developing you know, critical thinking or, or creativity or a sense of empowerment uh, over your own behavior. It seems like the perspective we would have on the calling the hunter-gatherer period of time sort of a golden age would depend on sort of where we are and in what culture we're in, right? There are going to be people who would look at the kind of controlling behavior and say, well, this is valuable, this is what's needed, and, and this is how we work and operate. Is there a degree to which the internet culture, the computer culture over the last 30 or 40 years is changing our perspective on freedom and independence in such a way as to be a part of this rethinking? I, I think so. I mean, I'm not the first to suggest that, but my goodness, the, the uh, every person who's got a computer has right at their fingertips the access to basically all the world's knowledge. Um, it has really democratized education. There, there, there's no need whatsoever to go to college if going to college is the purpose is learning. There's zero need anymore. There used to be you could argue that uh, you know the, you, by going to college you came across professors who, who could uh, present information that wasn't readily available in the world. Now everything's available. You can even you can even hear the the greatest lectures. You know Harvard's courses are are online. You know. There's, uh, it really is the case that um, children can educate themselves so easily and, and uh, readily that, and, and in whatever individual way they choose. So I think that that's true, that uh, there's been a, it, it, you know, it no, no longer does any child really in his or her heart believe 
that education is, that schooling is about education because education is so readily available for anybody who wants it. Education in whatever topic, whatever subject, whatever skill you want, <laughs> you can find a way to do it. But when we talk about education, we typically talk about it in terms of freeing an individual, being a part of their uh, intellectual growth and becoming a better person and more independent. Is the dissonance between how we talk about education and what seems to actually be happening kind of the way in which an institution justifies its existence? What's the human sort of story behind the difference between how we talk about education and what seems to be happening? Well, I think, you know, I think that people who, um, it, I mean, it probably depends on who you're, who you're referring to when talking about education. I think most people who go into education, whether they're going, they're becoming teachers, they're becoming professors of education, they're becoming administrators in schools, I think most of these people are very goodwill people. And, uh, and keep in mind that for, you know, for several generations now, everybody has gone through compulsory schooling. And so it's very, very difficult for people to imagine children growing up without compulsory schooling. We don't have many models of it. Of course, I know that those, uh, those people who are in the unschooling world or in, in the homeschooling world or in, uh, attending Sudbury uh, type schools, free schools of various sorts, certainly know many such people. But the typical person, does, you know, thinks of the person who doesn't go through the standard schooling as the, you know, as the standard, as the typical dropout, the person who's going to be a failure in society, maybe homeless, never get a job. So it becomes then the purpose of, of many people involved in education is we've got to help kids get through this schooling so they can then go out and get jobs because the jobs depend upon um, the schooling. So they're, they're, for good purposes, I think, you know, thinking in those terms, they're not thinking in larger terms. And, um, and, and I guess we can't really fault people for that. You know, people are looking at the reality right around them. Here's these kids. Um, they're failing in school. How can I help them do better in school? Uh, maybe we've got to make the rules stricter. Maybe we've got to do this or that. Maybe we've got to send them to school during the summer so they can pass these tests so ultimately they can go to college because we believe that by going to college they'll get better jobs. This is a way of thinking that's centered on solving the individual problems of individual kids, and it is constrained by not recognizing that there are other ways of solving this problem. This way of solving the problem has the effect of taking away the child's autonomy. That basically what we're telling kids when we're telling them to um, do well in school is to do what your teachers tell you to do, not what you want to do, but to do what your teachers tell you to do, which means subverting your own will, subverting your own questions. Uh, instead of trying to answer your own questions, answer the questions that the teacher has asked and uh, answer them in the way that the teacher wants you to answer them so you will get the right you will get the higher score on a test and you can achieve in this way. Now this has the side effect of subverting um, um, 
curiosity and creativity and all of this. It isn't done, I don't think, by most educators for that purpose, but that's the side effect of it. I think more and more educators are beginning to recognize that, and there's a lot of discomfort with what's happening in the schools, especially since the advent of No Child Left Behind and the, and the programs following that, and teachers are beginning to, many, many teachers are, that I know um, are retiring early or quit resigning because um, they're beginning to believe that they're doing more harm than good in the school, even people who not only a few years ago really were kind of idealistic um, in their in their um, in their teaching believe that they were doing something good so there may be change on this score but the um, the reality is that we that we have been caught by history you know we schools developed in a certain way schools have a certain momentum of their own which continues to increase in their power there's an enormous amount of vested interest on the part of people who are in the education business in one way or another. It employs, you know, millions of people. So that um, it's very hard, uh, I think impossible really, to change this system. Um, it will change only as uh, more and more people drop out of it. And that will occur as more and more people become aware that there are real alternatives, that really and truly kids can take charge of their own education if we simply provide them with the opportunities that they need to do that. So Robert Epstein came on the show a couple of years ago talking about his book Teen 2.0, so this research tome of all of the ways in which adolescence is a very different period of time in, in many cultures than it is for us. It's nice to think that we would sort of naturally read this material, think about it, and come to logical conclusions. But for a lot of us, we had to have kind of a precipitating moment that challenged our kind of following the typical structure. We had such an experience with our son when we were basically told he was a defective learner, and we felt like we couldn't accept that. The story you tell at the beginning of your book uh, is, is sort of a tear creating story. I mean, I actually just sort of paused for several minutes after reading it. Are you willing to relate that again? Sure. Um, yeah, I really um, became interested in all of this at the point when um, it was very clear that my son um, was, uh, was not going to adapt to public school. Um, we had been uh, he had been fighting school ever, you know, from kindergarten on into fourth grade, uh, continuously rebelling in various kinds of ways, um, really quite deliberate rebelling, not like, not so much like a little kid's rebelling, but more like a teenager's rebelling who's figured out, I'm going to, I'm going to just deliberately do the opposite of what the teacher tells me to do. So, for example, when the, when the teacher was, trying to get the kids to, to learn to use capital letters and punctuation um, and teaching the appropriate forms of punctuation, uh, my son began to write like the poet E. Cummings, putting, you know, using no punctuation or capitals or just putting them wherever he pleased quite deliberately, purely to annoy the teacher. 
And um, he would always solve arithmetic problems in, in some way that he would make up that was very different from the teacher's way. So when they were required to show the work, he would show his work, but the teacher couldn't make any sense of the work he showed. All very deliberate. I would fight with him. I'd say, you know, it would be so easy for you to just do what you're supposed to do. It would be so much less trouble for you. It would be so much less trouble for your mom and me to have work continuously being called in because you're being behaving so badly in school. So, but all of this was to no effect. I mean, he just, to him, school was prison, and he really was making a point of, of that and was just absolutely rebelling. So it reached a crisis in fourth grade, near the end of the year in fourth grade, and um, there was this big meeting in the principal's office in which uh, there was the principal, the assistant principal, his classroom teacher. I think there was an assistant classroom teacher there too. There were a couple of school psychologists there. Um, one called in from the larger district um, and one that was a school psychologist at the school. There was his mother and me. We were all there to present in no uncertain terms the united view that he had to follow the rules of school. There was no choice about it. He had to go to school. He had to stay in school. He had to do what his teachers told him to do in school. Uh, we all said our piece, you know, all of us seven or eight big adults facing this little nine-year-old boy. And the little nine-year-old boy looked at all of us, my son looked at all of us and said, go to hell. And at that moment, his mother and I both began to cry. And that was the change. You know, we realized he won. <laughs> and he won quite rightly. We were wrong. We were, we were fighting him when we should have been on his side. And um, it occurred to his mother and me both at once. And um, we realized we had to find something different for our son that... Um, at least for him, this was prison. This was this was a very, very, and he was not going to adapt to it. This was a cause for him. <laughs> and um, so we found something very different for him. And and that was also a turning point in my research career. This was a lot, this was many, many years ago. I had up until that point been doing um, brain research on um, with rats and mice as subjects, looking at the binding of certain hormones in the brain and how that modulates certain certain um, uh, drive states in animal in, in the mammalian brain, and uh, but with my son starting this uh, new radically different school, attending this new radically different school, the Sudbury Valley School in, in Framingham, the town that we happened to actually live in at that time, um, I got fascinated by the school and um, and did a study of the graduates. Um, partly because I was concerned about whether or not um, my son would be okay in the long run going to such an unusual school where kids are literally and truly in charge of their own education where nobody forces them or even coaxes them, coaxes them to learn any particular things. And education is entirely the child's responsibility, the student's responsibility in these schools. Um, how do they turn out? And so I... Um, the first study I did was a study of the graduates. Um, I first tried to talk, you know, various professors of education into doing such a study, but I couldn't seem to interest any of them in doing it. So I did that study, even though it was way out of my field. Um, and that was the first step 
in, in kind of a change in my research career towards um, looking first at the evidence that children do learn in this situation and then the, the question of how do they learn and that really led me deeply into um, the study of play because what children are doing is they're playing and exploring on their own and in the process they are learning what they need to know to become effective adults in the culture. It was interesting in because we did have a similar kind of moment at which we shifted sort of very dramatically from a controlling style to um, what you call trustful parenting or, or thinking of a long goal of self-direction and, and what I've been calling agency. I know that um, William Glasser calls it choice theory. I mean, there are other ways of looking at this, but something that really res is respectful of the individual's choices and freedoms. If I'm not mistaken, that same boy then takes a trip to London at age 13, right, by himself? Right. Yes, that's the same person. <laughs> well, what, you know, one of my favorite stories, of course, is the Lenore Skenazy, uh letting her son ride the subway in, in New York. Uh, you, you sort of uh, uh, compete with yeah. that for dramatic effect. But, uh, you know, fascinatingly, it's, it is really impossible to imagine a parent being allowed to do that now. Yeah, I mean, even then, even when I, even when that occurred, that was in the, forget exactly when, but sometime in the 1980s. Um, even then, you know, it raised some eyebrows. A 13-year-old boy, he had really just turned, barely turned 13 when he went. Um, he planned the whole trip when he was 12. He earned all the money for it by himself when he was 12. Um, made this trip to uh, to London. He took a side trip to Paris. Um, planned the whole thing. This was before the internet, you know, so he had to use uh, less efficient means than are available today to figure out where he was going, how much money it was going to cost, did arrange the entire thing himself, and then presented his mother and me with this plan. And um, and he was prepared to answer every objection that we had about it. Our biggest objection was the fact that he has um, uh, type 1 diabetes and um, I kind of uh, am leery. I kind of feel like nobody with type 1 diabetes should travel alone, regardless of age. But he was very clear that he was he was going to travel alone. That uh, by the when he was an adult, I wouldn't be able to stop him. That uh, so I couldn't argue it on that ground. Um, I also knew that he was as good at controlling his own diabetes, regulating it, and um, as um, any adult diabetic that I knew. Uh, the fact that he had planned this whole thing meant that he certainly had an adult-like ability to figure things out. Um, he had very good reasons for wanting to go. He was very big into Dungeons and Dragons kinds of games, and there were castles he wanted to visit and museums of medieval times that he wanted to visit. Um, he had a whole agenda of very good reasons for wanting to go. So. In the end, you know, how could we say no? <laughs> so, and it was a huge, wonderful adventure for him. So, um, and, you know, to, you're right. Today, um, you know, you might be accused of being a negligent parent for such a thing. Um, and yet, it wasn't that long ago that this, that you know, as Lenore Skenazy puts it, where you know, the, our great great grandparents might have put their nine year old kid on a on a rusty steamer across the ocean with a crust of bread and a 
you know, and a ruble in their hands <laughs> and, and and wish them good luck. So there's a, you know, our our trust of children, our estimation of children's abilities has really, really gone down over time. In the book, I make the claim, and I've so far I, nobody's uh, refuted it, that there has never been any time or place in human history in which people have underestimated children's abilities to the degree that we do today in our culture. We just, um, you know, every other society and the societies in the past has uh, understood that children are capable of much, much more than we believe they are capable of. Mar Maria's uh, in the chat posted a story of her own daughter's travel. I, she says it is legal, by the way. Uh, yeah, we did the same with our daughter and found it is legal, but pretty quickly you rack up all of these security fees, fees that the airlines now require. They have to accommodate your, they have to uh, accompany your child. So, so now you put them on the plane and you're paying $150 for someone to escort them from the counter to the, to the terminal or to the, the gate. Um, you talk about uh, schools as prisons. I think this is one of the more dramatic parts of the of the material. Um, it's kind of an emperor has no clothes moment, right? So, because schools as prisons is you're either going to agree or disagree with this statement. Why do you why do you call schools prisons? Well, I think that they, I think by a reasonable definition, they clearly are prisons. I, you know, I think that, I think we need to stop using euphemisms. Um, compulsory, you know, compulsory education means forced education. <laughs> and so we should call it forced education, you know. And if it's forced education, if the law says you have to be there in school. Of course, we know that in most states, at least in the United States, this isn't true in many places in Europe, but most states in the United States, there are ways that parents who are capable of figuring out how to do it, capable of talking the local school board into it, can get their kids out of school. But that's not available to most parents, or most parents don't realize it's available. And certainly the school system and the state does its best to make it seem as if kids are required to be in school. If they're not in school, they can go to juvenile detention. They can be basically put in that kind of a prison <laughs> for, for not going to school. The parents can be arrested if their parents don't send their children to school or make appropriate arrangements, and those arrangements may be difficult to make in different places. So basically, the law is saying that kids have to be there. So the kid feels there's no choice, and while there, the child is deprived of basic human rights. There's no freedom to associate with whom you please. You have to be in that classroom, associating with the people in that classroom. There's no freedom of speech. You speak in the way that you're told to speak. You're, you are, you're told what is the right and wrong answer to things. You know, there are proper things to say and not proper things to say. There's no freedom of uh, vote. There's no choice in what you... Uh, are allowed to do. There's no freedom to choose your own path to happiness. All the human rights that we think of as basic American human rights are taken away. You are every move as monitored. <laughs> you know, even as you move, as you as you go uh, on into junior high school and begin to move from class to class, even as you move from class to class, you're being observed and watched, um, if not directly by adult hall monitors and by security cameras. So it really is a prison-like sentence. So, you know, 
setting. So if you're compelled to be there, and while you're there, you're compelled to do just what you're told to do, that is one definition of a prison. So I think it's not just that school is like a prison. It is a prison, and, and we should call it that. So then the question becomes, do children need to be put in this kind of a prison for their own sake? And um, the burden of proof should be on the premise that they need to be. I mean, we don't, we don't put people into prison unless we can prove that they need to be there because they're a danger to society. And we don't put people in mental hospitals, make them inmates in mental hospitals, unless we can prove that they're a danger to others or to themselves. Have we proven that children are a danger to others or themselves if they're not put in this institution? Have we proven that they can't educate themselves by means in which they have control over their own education? Absolutely not. We've never proven that. And in fact, we can very easily prove the opposite. I mean, all of the evidence that comes from looking at the, my own study of the Sudbury Valley School, which is a setting where children are completely free to do what they please. Um, Follow-up studies of, of children who have um, been homeschooled by the, you know, or, or, or gone through unschooling. Um, there's no question but what they grow up okay. They grow up fine. <laughs> At least as good as the kids who are going to uh, this forced um, uh, prison-like setting. So, so I think we need to begin to talk about it in these terms so that before you sentence a child to this, you better be pretty sure that the child absolutely needs it. And my argument is that once you start looking into the evidence, you're not going to be able to prove that children need this. You're in fact going to be able to prove the opposite, that they don't need it and that they do better without it. Peter, you don't say this, but I'm wondering how you might respond to um, something I want to propose. Um, is there a connection, do you think, between the financialization of our culture over the last 20 or 30 years and the desire to control students? Is, is this kind of control, compliance, culture beneficial to the organizations that have increasingly uh, led our society? You know, I, I don't really know, but I don't think so. I actually think that I actually think that there was a time when the kind of control that is exerted in school was seen as beneficial to society. That the schools were producing um, assembly line workers, producing people whose main skills had to be to be able to do boring work <laughs> for long periods of time without complaining too much who would show up on time, who would do what they're told to do, had a minimal capacity to read and write so they could uh, read the directions and, and write out notes and so on and so forth. It could be argued that, that the schools as we know them, these kinds of controlling schools as we know them today, were um, good institutions for training people for that kind of robot-like work. But now we've got robots to do that kind of work. We don't need people like that. And, and everybody recognizes that. I mean, business leaders, they don't want, they don't want robots because they can, they can buy robots. What they want is people who are creative, who are innovative, so this is another thing that gives me hope. I don't think the economic forces of our time um, are demanding this. I think that I think they really are looking looking 
for something quite different. And I think that's actually why kids who graduate from Sudbury Valley School or unschooled kids have actually a step up because they can show that they are, they've often done some things already. They've, they've already achieved some things in the real world and they've, they've, they show that they're creative and they actually have developed some of the skills that are valuable for the careers that they're going into. So I think that's another thing that gives me hope actually is that not only the computer age gives me hope by all by itself because it's so easy to educate yourself, but the fact that um, that we have become more and more a nation of entrepreneurs and innovators and, and uh, creators um, that we need we need people like this. Everybody recognizes that. The Asian schools are recognizing that their schools are absolutely failing. Their economies are suffering and going to suffer more in the future because kids are not graduating their schools cre with cre creative. They're graduating as good test takers, but that's it. And um, not able to do anything really in the real world. There's more and more, um, more and more Chinese scholars and Korean scholars. Um, writing about about this problem and they're looking to our schools while in order to try to understand how we've been able to produce such creative people um, and of course our schools at the same time over the last 30 years have been looking to their schools so that we get higher test scores but that is um, but that I don't think that comes out of trying to meet the economic realities of our times I think it comes out of something entirely different it comes out of this you know the schooling, the schooling mentality itself, the the belief on the part of politicians that teachers um, need to prove their worth, and that's sort of an understandable position. I mean, and then how do you how do you get teachers to prove their worth? Well, you have to prove that their kids are the kids in their class are learning something. So that means you've got to test the kids, and then you start to compare schools based on the children's test scores and then voila you get what you have today so over the past two or three decades we've had greater and greater emphasis on just test scores and teachers being less and less free to uh, even add some element of playfulness and individuality into the classroom than was the case before so I attribute the um, you know the continued um, decline in the school environment and the continued decline in children's freedom um, not to the not to the economic forces of our time but rather um, to forces that come pretty much out of the schooling mentality Peter I want to I want to explore nuance there uh, having worked for a couple of these companies that have claimed that they want creativity um, I find that what they really want is creativity within a compliance model rather than independent thinking. I mean, is there in some ways a, a moral imperative for a democratic society to have people who can think independently? And is that a nuanced difference between, is there a nuanced difference between creativity and independent thinking? Yeah, there definitely is. Now, I, I, I'm not prepared to speak about, you know, the general work world, but I, I do think that what I see is that kids who are growing up thinking independently, that are creative, uh, that are able to, uh, um, able to take charge of their own lives, are doing pretty well in the work world. 
um, compared to kids who are um, growing up sort of dutifully following the rules and doing what they're supposed to do and then realizing, wait a minute, I don't really have any skills anybody wants to hire me for. So, um, you know, my experience is that you are not at a disadvantage in economically for being a creative thinker in our current society. Okay, let's move on. So t tell us what free play is. Well, free play, I, I prefer to call it just play because uh, I, although I often use the term free play just for clarity because we use the word play for so, so many other things. But to me, play is not really play if it isn't free. And by free, I mean that it's self-chosen and self-directed. So a pickup game of uh, baseball where the kids are creating their own game, and they're being their own referees and umpires, they're, they're adjusting the rules to fit the situation, they're um, arguing out their differences among themselves, that's free play. A little league game directed by adults on a manicured field where the adults are solving all the problems, where the rules are all pre-prescribed and the kids, all they have to do is do what they're told to do and do it as best they can, that's not free play. So that's an example of the difference. But basically, free play is the kind of play that all kids engage in when they are free to play with one another. Um, when, ch when adults are directing children's, quote, play, then it becomes no longer free play and, in my mind, no longer really play. What else is important to recognize that happens in play? Well, also, you know, the, really the thesis of my book is that basically all aspects of children's development is promote, are promoted by play. You know, if, it is, if the hunter-gatherer way of life represents the common way of life during most of human evolution, then for most of human evolution, children and adolescents too were growing up playing and exploring freely. That was how they were acquiring all the kinds of skills that they need to acquire as adults. That includes not just the kinds of physical skills that are needed um, for uh, the physical and manual skills that are needed, but also the emotional skills, the social skills, the acquisition of moral values, the abilities to get along with one another. These are all promoted by social play. Wherever children are free, and free to interact with one another, they play in social groups. They're very, very much attracted to other kids, and they interact through play. Now, because it's free play, the, the essence of free play is that you're not only free to join it, to start it, but you're free to quit. And so whenever it becomes unpleasant for you, you're going to quit. There's nobody telling you you have to do it. There's no enforcer there. There are no parents or other adults that are shaming you if you, calling you a quitter if you quit. So every kid knows in the playgroup that um, the other kids are going to quit if uh, they're not treated well. So play becomes a vehicle for children to learn how to see things from others' points of view. So if you and I are playing a game together, 
the first thing we have to do is figure out what we're going to play. I want to play this, you want to play that, um, I don't want to play that, you don't want to play what I want to play, so let's figure out something we both want to play. So immediately we're compromising. We're trying to get into one another's minds, figuring out something we'll both enjoy. Then we have to create the rules for it in a way that we both enjoy it. If in the course of this play I begin to, in one way or another to bully you, I start wanting everything my way, you're just going to quit and I'm going to learn a lesson there. You know, I better not do this because now I'm left alone. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty serious punishment to me for somebody to just abandon me and I no longer have anybody to play with. And if I continue to behave that way, I'm going to lose all my playmates. So fortunately, I have plenty of opportunities to try again. There are other kids out there. I try again, and I um, this time I pay a little more attention to their needs. So, so children in play are acquiring the ability to see things from other people's perspectives, and there's hardly any more important skill than that. You know, people even in our culture today can get along without reading. There are heads of corporations who can't read. But nobody can get along without knowing how to get along. Nobody can get along happily, I should say. Nobody can live a happy life uh, without knowing how to get along with other people, without being able to see from another person's perspective. In play, play is fundamentally not competitive. You know, even this baseball game, the pickup baseball game is pseudo-competitive. But in the end, nobody cares who wins. You know, each each team may cheer wildly when their team scores a point, but in the end, nobody remembers the next day which team won. And it doesn't even matter because the teams vary from day to day. And even within a given game, kids will switch sides to make the teams more even and so on. So the whole point of the game is to have fun, to cooperate, to improve your skills. It's not to win. Uh, it's only really when adults take over play that play becomes competitive. As soon as you have adults cheering kids on, as soon as you have adults keeping track of, of victories and creating championships and giving trophies and all of this kind of thing, then play becomes competitive. And, that, and, and, and also the competitive nature of it takes away the playfulness because now you're doing it for some end. You're doing it for the trophy. You're doing it so to go on your resume or so that you will win praise from your coach or your parents or whoever, it's not no longer being done just for fun. So play has built in into it the characteristics that are almost ideally designed for teaching children how to cooperate, get along with one another, see from one another's points of view. Children also in play, and this is really very important, are learning how to regulate their emotions. In fact, one of the leading theories of play, which has come out of animal research, is what is called the emotion regulation theory of play. Um, the best evidence for it comes from uh, research showing that if you deprive young monkeys or rats, it's been done with both kinds of species, of play as they're growing up, give them their ways of raising them so that they have other kinds of social experiences but they don't have the opportunity to play with other young monkeys or rats. They may even be exposed to non-playful others, um, but are not allowed to be, but are not exposed to playful others. Under those conditions, when they are tested as young adults and put in a moderately fearful situation, they overreact with fear. They don't adapt to the situation. If put in a, if put with a, with a peer, they may lash out, they may alternate between freezing 
in fear in the corner, or avoiding the other, or lashing out inappropriately, uh, aggressively at the other. They don't know how to control their fear and their aggression. There's a lot of evidence that young mammals, including young, young human beings, are constantly practicing the control of their emotions in their play. That's why children love to play at dangerous things. You know, the little kids swing too high in the swings. They climb high in trees. They skateboard down banisters. They do somersaults on skis. They do all these things that look really dangerous to, um, to us adults. But generally, they do it knowing that they can do it, but also pushing the edge of where it just begins to feel pretty frightening, but they know they can control the fear as well as control the, the, the behavior itself. So the argument is that what they're doing, they're not consciously doing this, but what they're ultimately doing is learning how to experience fear and control that fear and realize I can feel fear and yet I can still control it and I can behave adaptively and I don't panic. I don't fall apart because of the fear. Similarly, as kids are engaged in rough house play, play fighting and so on, in, in all kinds of play, anger arises. They get mad at one another as they disagree. But they have to learn to control that anger because otherwise the play ends. And nobody wants the play to end. Children want to continue playing. That's, you know, that's a major drive to them. So they learn how to control their fear. They learn how to control their anger in play. So my argument is that over the last 50 or 60 years in the United States, we've been basically increasingly conducting a play deprivation experiment with our children. We've been depriving them of this opportunity for free play, more and more having them engage in activities under adult control and direction, less and less allowing them the kind of free play in which they can learn to get along with others, in which they can experience fear and anger and learn how to control it themselves. Um, and the consequence of that, I think, is, is this data that I gave earlier, as we were talking earlier, that there's been this rise in, in uh, mental disorders and emotional disorders, uh, anxiety, depression. Um, these come from inability to regulate one's own emotions. So, so the, you know, there's almost nothing important in human development that children don't acquire through play. And yet here we are depriving them of, um, of the very kind of activity that they, that they need for healthy development. You know, an hour is never enough time. But as a courtesy to our guests, we always finish on the hour so that um, uh, we know you've, you've, you've committed some time and we really appreciate it. I think that's a great place to stop. There's no question that there's so much more I'd like to talk about. The question of safety came up in the chat. Uh, please do go look at the book. There are some just fascinating stories of very young children um, in different cultures where, where um, those of us in modern American or Western culture cringe, but lots, of, lots to learn. Peter, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's been my Perfect pleasure. to have you here. The book is Free to Learn by Peter Gray. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, Ernie Turner and Simona David on uh, community efforts to improve schooling, and then Will Richardson on his short book. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day or evening, depending on where you are. Bye. Bye-bye.